This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time, and this is a Hack the Craft episode. For the podcast listeners, we are starting a new show, and we're going to, we're continuing with the Hack the Craft piece that we've been working on. Uh, Steve has been so very generous to let us use him as our guinea pig that we throw into the fire to the gods of writing um and i have to say taylor keeps asking me if i'm okay and i'm fine so if in case you're wondering out there don't (laughs) worry about that we are recording this believe it or not we're recording all of these straight through because it's the only way to do it and and maintain any sense of continuity so yes steve is fine and 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 taylor is feeling (laughs) incredibly guilty um, which we all knew would happen i mean we said that during the uh we said that during the intro episode to this yes so to recap we talked about dialogue and then we read the scene that we would be working on and i broke down the two biggest concerns that i had on the whole from a story perspective and then steve let us eviscerate his writing Um, we went line by line, what I felt were concerns in the text, line by line, as they related to both little quibbles and my main issues with the scene, which was Reggie as a character, and that um, the scene didn't seem to have any purpose and the dialogue didn't seem to have any purpose. So now we're at the part where we're going to start breaking it down segment by segment, Um, we're going to go back and read the original and then my rewrites. And in the original, I have comments still, but they're new comments saying sort of what I did with this, what I did with it from an editing perspective before we move into actually looking at my actual edits. Um, yeah, so that's where we are. So here we go. The door opened into the foyer of an elegantly decorated room and Cassandra Pennington. So I felt that this way of introducing Cassie was a little bit awkward, so I just deleted it. The next paragraph says, We all have a type when it comes to the opposite sex. I always thought mine started with a desire to laugh and an unwillingness to take oneself too seriously. Beyond that, I was partial to different body styles, heights, and hair colors. But what I saw when I stepped out of the elevator must have been what I'd been genetically wired to desire. So I deleted all of that, too. Not because Reggie shouldn't have been starstruck, but I felt that right there and at that moment in time, it comes across as self-absorbed. So we're going to find another way to introduce some of this information. So what he saw was a woman dressed comfortably in faded jeans and a loose white T-shirt, golden hair piled on top of her head and a face that appeared free of makeup. She was about two inches shorter than my six foot two, and her bare feet sported bright red toenails. A smudge of blue, bright blue paint on her nose completed the picture. I think that's fantastic detail. It gives such a good um, idea of Cassie from his point of view, which is fantastic. And I'm going to pretty much keep all of that. We're just going to tweak it a little bit. 
the next comes the first dialogue exchange where she says, you are Reggie Carpenter, aren't you? She asked, a puzzled look on her face. Oops, I'd apparently been struck dumb at the sight of her. Yes, yes, sorry, long drive, you must be Cassandra. So I edited all that way down and I isolated the struck dumb at the sight of her and rewarded it to stand on its own because I felt that that was the key part of that scene was that she took his breath away. So here's the rewrite. The doors opened to an elegant foyer and to a woman who stood waiting. That is what he sees as he sees it, nothing more. That's bam, the doors have opened. We're seeing this through his eyes. She was early 30s, maybe, about two inches shorter than my own six foot two. I think it's supposed to be six feet two. I always get chided by the copy editors on that. So, oh, what did I just do? Um, so I don't know if, you know, don't take my actual, my punctuation, anything that is, um, you know, to do with grammar and all that. Don't even listen to me. I'm really just focused on, on the words and the imagery and all of that. And the rest of it, just ignore me because I get a lot of that stuff wrong and I'm constantly being chided and corrected. So Let's see if I can figure myself out here. So she was um, early 30s, maybe about six, two inches shorter than my own six feet two, barefoot in faded jeans and a loose white T-shirt, toes sporting bright red polish and golden hair piled atop her head in a messy bun. So I moved that, which was the description of Cassie, right up top because that allows us to see what the character sees in the order he sees it before he emotionally reacts so that we don't it doesn't become noise and just feel like it's all about him or self-obsessed or anything like that. And then a bludge a smudge of blue paint decorated her nose. So that completes the description and in case you're wondering about that smudge of blue paint that has meaning it's there for a reason. Um, his thoughts I don't know what I expected to find this side of the phone call, but seeing her, I temporarily lost the ability to speak. So that by itself, just that, I don't know what I expected to find this side of the phone call, but seeing her, I temporarily lost the ability to speak. That tells us he's smitten with her. I mean, that's it. We don't need anything more than it, and it's not obsessive. It's not creepy. He's not talking about his genetic desires or anything like that. It's just she took his breath away. She offered a heart-stopping smile and stretched a hand towards mine. So this is now bodily movement. This The characters are interacting. They're not just standing there, arms by their side, mouths moving and words coming out of their mouths. There's interaction, right? And when she, the word, the word uses, we're inside Reggie's head. She offered a heart-stopping smile. That continues the fact that he's smitten with her, but it doesn't come across. It comes across more like she's having that effect on him rather than he's building it up inside his head, right? And so it establishes her as being friendly and straightforward, and she's making the first move, and it's a handshake. Mr. Carpenter, she said. So this takes on the same are who you are you who I think you are as the original, but without making her look dumb. Not like, are you Reggie Carpenter? She just comes right out with it, Mr. Carpenter. So I nodded, shook in greeting, and forced air to my vocal cords. Cassandra Pennington, I presume? Just Cassie, she said. Come on in. So 
the nodding, the shaking and greeting, the forcing air air to his vocal cords, that's all part of that package of needing the character interact the character interaction so they're not just standing there bodies not moving and the cassandra pennington i presume just shortcuts us to he's just making an assumption it's a logical assumption just confirming that he she's the one he came to see when she says just cassie she said come on in that's half of that conversation about their names that they were having and i moved it to where it's more natural to human interaction. And her portion of that entire conversation, rather than saying all those words of, you know, I've got the same thing going on, I my name is Cassandra, but I prefer to use Cassie or whatever, she's just summarized it in one little line and transitioned them directly into movement, which pushes the scene forward. So now we know they're going somewhere. The next segment of the original says, I am, because she said, are you Reggie Carpenter, right? He says, I am. Oh, no, he asked her, sorry, are you Cassandra Pennington? I am, and you got here here more quickly than I'd expected. She pointed to the patio. Please make yourself comfortable outside. Would you like coffee or some iced tea? So I deleted this, the I am, and you got here more quickly than you expected, partly because the dialogue was redundant and partly because there was nothing to tell us where their bodies were in time or space. It's like they just magically appeared outside the pat- the balcony, at which, by the way, a balcony is, if you're above the ground floor, a patio is ground floor. So if she pointed to a patio, <laughs> he'd go falling off down, down on the ground is where he'd be. So... Um, so I and I added new detail to fill all of this in this getting them from place to place, putting their bodies in time and space. I kind of created that out of whole cloth and hopefully I did justice to it. So then the next thing in the original is I walked out into a perfect November afternoon where I tried to gather my wits, which had scattered about the foyer when I saw Cassandra. I took a deep breath inhaled the briny ocean air and focused on organizing my overstimulated mind. I walked the length of a large patio, which was furnished with expensively upholstered upholstered outdoor furniture. A table with six chairs sat on one end, while two comfortable lounge chairs sat on the other. So in the opening paragraph of this book, which we don't have here, it tells us that it's a beautiful November day. So this becomes redundant because it's so close in the in the actual text. So we already know what the weather's like. We know what month we're in. So we need to, to delete that just for redundancy. But with the rest of this, I reworked the detail to shorten and tighten it because what ended up happening was we got nothing moving them from the elevator to the balcony and then all this detail about the balcony so it's almost like cassie doesn't have anything between the elevator and the balcony and so because i did not have a sense of place doesn't act there's nothing that actually tells us in the text i had to invent it and i invented it by imagining this as a building where um the the I don't know if you've ever been in apartments like this, but where the elevator actually opens directly to the foyer of the apartment itself. So that's sort of what I ran with with it. But we'll get to that in a minute. 
So now we're still uh, with Reggie, and he says, I stepped through the chairs and took a seat at the table. My eyes were pointed to the Atlantic, but what I saw instead was Cassandra, paint on her nose, looking expectantly at me. Could the fates have actually delivered me to the perfect woman after I finished listening to that audiobook? No way. I was in deep trouble here. So I deleted pretty much all of that just because of the issues that we already explained. And so here's the rewrite with the added detail and trying to give us character, building the characters. So Reggie's point of view. I followed her around the corner into a spacious, high-ceilinged open floor unit decorated nearly entirely in minimalist white, which offset enormous paintings that filled the walls and the room with vibrant color. Color. So this is new detail. It's giving us a sense of place. I'm not really happy with the way it's worded, but I ran out of time in trying to tweak it. But my focus here in that paragraph is to give us a sense of what Cassie's room looked like, house looked like, apartment, whatever, and to highlight the issue of art because art plays a major role in Cassie's life and also in this story. And I figure if she's an art appraiser, she's, as it we'll learn later, she also does painting, um, that we, she, her, her life, what she surrounds herself with would reflect that. So that's, sort of what I went with. She caught me looking and said, do you know much about art, Mr. Carpenter? So this is their opening conversational gambit. It's a, it's natural curiosity because art is her career. And it also gives us a way to foreshadow future suspicions. So this is what, this is their opening dialogue until, you know, up until now, all they said was, you know, are you Cassie? Are you Reggie? Come on in. And here we are. Do you know much about art? And Reggie says, not enough to understand why something I could have drawn in kindergarten would be worth $12 million, I said. I pointed to the 10 by 10 on the far wall, far wall. But that, in my layman's opinion, is pretty amazing. So the $12 million thing of a, a picture, a painting that could be worth by drawn by someone in kindergarten, that's referencing something Reggie saw earlier in the Rudd's mansion. And it's a bit of an anchor, and we're going to circle back to it. Because repetitions like this can help to loop the narrative in a way that it feels richer and deeper due to the way the familiar works as sort of a shortcut reference point. It's like the author and the reader being in on a private joke. So that's why when um, the original talked about the audiobook, I was like, this is really good because it's looping us back, but just we're going to have to find a way to fit it in elsewhere. So in response to him pointing out the 10 by 10 on the far wall and saying it's pretty amazing, thank you, she said. It's one of mine. So what this does is it's establishing the blue paint thing on her nose in a more obvious way where it feels like conversation, but it's also character interchange. So through this, we've learned now that Cassie paints and it's a natural give and take sort of when you're when you are approaching an individual and you need something from them and in this case Reggie needs information from Cassie there's this natural give and take flow you're checking out the other person you're getting a feel for their temperament and it all happens very subconsciously it's all part of how social interaction works and we need to see some of that on the page but not in a way that it's asking a very, not in a way that the dialogue comes across as just filling up space. So we're, 
I'm looking for ways to integrate these characters and who they are and what's important to them in this sort of natural dance, give and take exchange of social interaction that goes on in everyday life and that we would expect to see here. So in response to Kathy saying, uh, Cassie saying, it's one of mine, Reggie's inner dialogue says, I guess that explained the blue paint on her nose. And that's something that we don't really get a lot of in the original text is um, any sense of Reggie's thoughts about anything other than that he's smitten with this woman. But when you want a scene to have purpose, the way you do it is by returning again and again to the character's thoughts about what is going on around them and what their motives are and what they're hoping to find or gain. But you can't just do that only in the parts where it's critical to the plot. It's got to be part of the regular give and take and that threads throughout the entire narrative. So he has reflected. I guess that explains the blue paint on her nose. She led out onto the ocean view balcony where an outdoor sofa sat beneath an awning shade. Its table held an open book and a glass of something green. Can I offer you anything, she said. Coffee, tea? Tea would be great, I said. So I cut way back the detail of the, what was on the balcony because we already had the detail of what was now inside the house to sort of offset that. So we don't have as much room for detail. And I also changed it somewhat because in the original... Reggie's walking this, he's seeing things. He's seeing furniture that tells him that she must be well off. But by seeing already now the minimalist white and the enormous paintings and all of that, we can kind of get the same impression without having to cover that same territory. And by it's a throwaway line. It doesn't have to be there, but, you know, the table held an open book and a glass of something green. That's character. It tells us that Cassie was reading. It sort of gives us a hint at what she was doing before Reggie showed up or what she wants Reggie to think she was doing before he showed up. So that's what, when I say, you know, that the the dialogue needs to be an interchange of character and of, you know, the inner world of what's going on inside the character's minds, and it needs to to drive it, the plot forward and to bring character to life. These are the little types of things that bring character to life. It's, it's not overtly stated, but it's there giving us little glimpses into what that character was doing. And we didn't have any of that in the original. We just had this back and forth sort of transcript of, of how they were interacting. So the next, oh, I did it again lost my place. Sorry, guys. I'm, so I, so wait, for those of you who don't have video, yeah, you're, this just, on video, what she's, she's got some magical thing that she pushes I that takes her from pushed. midway through the, through the manuscript all the way to the bottom. Yeah, and then just, she's got to go find her place again. It's so stupid. It's me. And I the first time she did it, she had some filler that she could just throw in there and it sounded pretty good, but uh, it, I, she lost it. This I time. totally lost it, guys. Fumble. Game over. No, okay. So here's the original again. A few minutes later, she reappeared with a tray of iced tea and sat it in the middle of the table. The blue paint was gone and the hair atop her head was slightly better organized, so perhaps she wanted to make an impression as well. One could hope. She spoke. Reggie, I assume that's short for Reginald? For my parents, maybe, but not for me. So in this part, I kept the character movement and I took out the emotional projection 
And then I deleted most of the dialogue and I replaced it with new dialogue. I watched her hands as she poured. Her nails were unpolished and her ring finger was gloriously bare. Why do you say that? She asked. She's asking about his name. Sorry, automatic reaction. Yes, it's short for Reginald. I'm officially Reginald Randolph Carpenter II, but I prefer Reggie. So I just realized that this is the second time Reggie has said sorry since he stepped off the elevator. So we need to keep an eye out for future uses. It could be a writing tick. I Everybody has writing ticks. And um, I know in real life, sorry is something that we say so often. Especially, it just it slips into our writing. So, um, yeah, just note to self type thing. Okay, so I deleted, oh, and then she says, I, I see, she said, I've got the same kind of thing going on. Professionally, I go by Cassandra because it fits the work I do, but I prefer Cassie. So I deleted most of this dialogue and I replaced it with new for reasons that we've already discussed. And speaking of professional obligations, you said you had some questions about work I did for Mrs. Rudd. So I reworked this to make it feel, to add character and make it feel more natural. Um, Cassie, she stirred sugar into her iced tea while I gathered my thoughts. I deleted most of this paragraph, actually. Um, we'll just read the rest of it. And I kept the essence about the card. So she stirred sugar into her iced tea while I gathered my thoughts. It wouldn't do to come off as accusatory. I'm actually looking into the baseball card, the Mickey Mantle card in Mr. Rudd's office. Do you remember the card? So here's how the rewrite reads. She left me there. And I walked the length of the railing, taking in the view, inhaling briny air and trying to corral now very scattered thoughts. She returned a few minutes later with a pitcher and tumblers on a tray. The blue paint on her nose was gone. She slid into the chair in front of the book, motioned to the seat opposite, poured a glass, and handed it to me. So this is the same as the original. It's just highly compressed to keep the story moving. I couldn't help but notice her ring finger was gloriously bare. She said, so then, Mr. Reginald Randolph Carpenter, what can I do for you? So this is the second half of that name conversation they had, but it's presented as a challenge, sort of, I know more about you than you think I know, which is the opening gambit in establishing that her character is smart, and just because she's easy on the eyes doesn't mean she's easy. This character development, that concept of Cassie as being smart and, you know, whatever, that's going to be built upon and interwoven throughout the entire rest of this exchange. Because without this, the tension between Reggie and Cassie throughout the rest of the book, especially his suspicions of her, are going to feel forced. So we need to start building that here right from the very beginning. Now, in throwing her his full name out there like that, he has to react. There's got to be, he's got to give us something. So this is all new. He says, the way my full name rolled off her tongue made my cheeks flush. It also told me that in the few hours since our call, she'd done her research and probably already knew more about me than my own dear mother, which put me at a distinct disadvantage, and that if this came to a war of wits, I was going to lose. So this type of character self-deprecation can be endearing versus um, what we talked about before with that need to escape which wasn't endearing, because it's used as a character observation and it's establishing the potential for conflict. And he's sort of acknowledging like, hey, I'm up against a serious opponent here, which is exactly the opposite of being 
uh, it's the exact opposite of objectifying. It's the opposite of um, of being sexist because he's seeing her as more than just a pretty face. He's seeing her as more than just an object of his attention. It's like, okay, I need to take her seriously. So if this came to a war of wits, I was going to lose. That didn't mean I had to surrender without a fight. The second, I said, she raised her eyebrows. If we're going full on formal, my name's Reginald Randolph Carpenter the second, though I much prefer Reggie. So this is what the name conversation looks like when it's done in sort of a playfulness, flirting, battle of wits. You're not that smart. You forgot something. And it's just one of many ways to do it. If Steve wants to change it, take it out. I'm not going to be offended. I just, I can't, I can't say this is wrong and then not give an example of how it would look if it was done. And by wrong, I don't mean use the wrong words. I mean, like, we want to see that sort of character interplay, the the natural banter while learning new things. And so this is an example of what that looks like. It's one of many examples. But what we're going for is that it feels natural and human, and it's not forced, and it's a way to provide the same information we were getting before, but while building character at the same time. So he's just basically called her on it and said, you know, I'm actually Reginald Randolph Carpenter II, though I much prefer Reggie. She smiled slyly and spooned sugar into her glass. All right, Reggie, she said, which I'm pretty sure I misspelled all right here. I always get my knuckles wrapped on that too, but you know, I'm an old dog and it's hard to teach me new tricks. So, all right, Reggie, she said, I've got 30 minutes until I have to prepare for another appointment. So best make use of that time. So instead of, this is in replacing what questions do you have? Because she already knows that he's come for something. And this is her basically putting him on point, like saying, all right, you're here. You wanted to, you want something, you've got 30 minutes. And it's a lot more of a natural way to do it. And it also sends, sets a time boundary, which is a very human thing if somebody's a busy professional. And it keeps her in charge of the conversation. That's character. Reggie's inner world again. I was tempted to pull the notepad from my back pocket and up the ante on her formality bid, but couldn't bring myself to do it. So that's humanizing, which shows that he cares about her opinion of him in, in a non-obsessive way. Like, he wants to impress her, but he's not going on in his head about, you know, oh, my God, she's so amazing or whatever. Um, and so that's that's more it, it keeps him grounded in, in, in reality and humanity. And it's, it's character. He's playing with her. He's he's working with this and, and he's he's caught her sense of uh, humor of what she's going on with now. He says offhand, how much do you remember about the Rudd estate appraisal? So this begins their conversation about the card, and it respects the passage of time, because this is how conversations usually work. It's only the really socially awkward people who are just going to launch right in, right? The rest of us want to get a feel for what the other person knows, and that's what he's doing now. Just how she was feeling him out with, do you know anything about art? He's feeling her out going, how much do you remember about the Red Estate appraisal? It also assumes she already knows why he's there. Because why would he be there? And she's not going to let him in if she hadn't already vetted him and knew what they needed to talk about. 
But that's only part of the purpose. Like we, our goal here, remember, is to establish the purpose for this entire conversation. And it can't just be something they could talk about over the phone. So she leaned toward the seat next to her, picked up a small file box, and placed it on the table. Work with me here. This is going to solve one of our awkward problems, and it's lining up for that. She says, offhand, not much at all, she said. But I refreshed my memory after Elizabeth called. So this respects the passage of time, and it also establishes a common understanding between them without overtly stating it that Elizabeth Rudd was the one who called Cassie first, not Cassie calling Elizabeth, and later will establish that there was a release signed to allow Reggie to access this information, which is important because that's how the real world works. You can't just go in and start asking all this question about this private information. So Reggie says, I'm looking into the baseball card. The Mickey Mantle, she said, that's the one. The card's been part of the Rudd estate for over 15 years. Charles Rudd recently decided it was time to sell, but the auction house returned it as a replica. So when she, when he says, I'm looking into the baseball card, she's already told him that she's refreshed her memory. He doesn't need to state the obvious by saying, do you remember the baseball card? He just says, this is what I'm here for, right? And her by saying the Mickey Mantle, She's telling him she's on the same page. This is how real life conversation works. It's not this, you know, question, answer, question, answer. There's just this interchange between people because so much of communication is unstated. And then when he says that's the one, the card's been part of the Red Estate for over 15 years, la, la, la. He doesn't know what she knows. So he is repeating what the reader already knows at this point. It's redundant. But this is the one spot where it's redundant because it's the easiest way to establish a base understanding between the characters without a lot of nasal gazing, inner dialogue, trying to explain his word choices, whatever. So he just puts it out there. But it's not a constant repeat of what the author already knows. I mean, sorry, what the audience already knows. It is getting them on the same page very quickly with as few words as possible. And then we might have to stop because I don't think we have enough time to, to complete this whole thing in one uh, sitting. So next, the text says, yes, Elizabeth told me that when I, sorry, Elizabeth told me that when I called her to confirm that it was okay to speak with you. What questions do you have? I was pleased and a little surprised that she wasn't put off by the reason for my visit. Well, the obvious, I guess, was the card you saw a year ago worth $2.8 million dollars. She pulled out her phone and tapped for a few seconds. It was a little over a year ago. My appraisal was for $850,000, she said. She handed me the phone. I looked, and there it was, in a long list of items that had been appraised. Mrs. Rudd was right. The card was one of the lesser, pri lesser pieces. I handed the phone back. According to Mr. Rudd, the card in his possession is now worth significantly less than that. She sip, took a sip of her iced tea and tucked a leg underneath herself on the chair. Do you understand what an appraisal is, Reggie? Perhaps not, but I'm willing to learn. So this entire conversation was stilted and problematic in terms of redundancy and lack of new information. So I basically deleted it and started fresh. The original says, and hopefully I don't mess this up again, there was small movement at the left side of her mouth, almost the beginning of a smile, but it disappeared quickly. The terminology in my business can be confusing. When I appraise items for insurance or other purposes, my appraisal assumes the piece being praised, appraised is authentic and as described. So that, and before when we were looking at it in the previous uh, section, that was key information right there that is so much. This right there is what 
our entire scene is about. He's coming for this information. So here's how I am. Here's the rewrite with um, the new detail and everything based on research that I did and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Elizabeth did mention that. And this is Reggie again. Yet your appraisal valued it at 850000 It did, yes. And that was as recent as just over a year ago. A year and four months to be precise, she said. But can I pause you for a second and possibly save us both some time? I've been under the impression from Elizabeth's call and the release form she sent that you were looking to audit the appraisal documents. They're all here, by the way. You're welcome to them. But I expect I've misunderstood. If I'm reading you correctly, what you're actually interested in is narrowing the time frame on when whatever happened to the card might have happened. So this first part, when she says, I'd been under the impression from Elizabeth's call, that's explaining her understanding of the situation, and it adds context to both sides of the equation. So it gives the face-to-face a sense of purpose, and it explains why, even if Cassie misunderstood, she would have accommodated a face-to-face appointment versus putting him off for a phone call. Because we have to remember that just because we, as the, the author, or you as the author, need this scene to happen, there has to be more than that. So all of this up until now could have been taken care of over the phone, but if he was going to audit the documents, then he'd need to do that in person or she would need to send the files to him. So him asking for a face-to-face appointment now all of a sudden makes a little bit more sense. It also... Um, helps to what we're doing right now is we're redirecting and showing us again why we needed to come in person right so she says to him if i'm reading you correctly what you're actually interested in is narrowing the time frame on when whatever happened to the card might have happened and he says there's that i said but yours were the last professional hands to come in physical contact with it prior to the auction house which makes your insight valuable and that's what i'm hoping for So this is what being able to point to character motivation on the page looks like. It doesn't have to be this explicit. Sometimes it needs to be more explicit. It depends entirely on the genre and the voice and the tone, etc. But her intuition and his subsequent clarification are what give this scene its purpose. This doesn't explicitly state why he couldn't do this on the phone, but it gives a sense of wanting more than just a few minutes of detached conversation. So if this was my work, I might go back to the scene before it, which was off off page here, to explain, to interject a few lines of inner dialogue and explain that he doesn't actually know enough yet to know what an intelligent question looks like, but he's hoping a conversation about the card might open up or eliminate possibilities. That's the thing about asking questions, is that you can't have someone ask intelligent questions if they don't know enough, but by having them acknowledge that, that they don't know enough, it then can make what seem like redundant questions or seem like uninteresting questions. It gives those a certain uh, forgiveness. There's a certain forgiveness to them because we understand that the character isn't, as long as we understand what's in the character's head and what they're feeling and, and why they're doing what they're doing, then we can forgive a lot. So um, if, if originally, before we did this whole rewrite, Reggie had acknowledged that he need, he wanted to find out more. He didn't really know what an intelligent question in this situation would even look like, but he wanted to talk to the person whose hands were the last to handle this thing professionally before the auction house. Then we might not even be doing this rewrite because 
those questions as redundant as they were, the dialogue as awkward as it was, it could have passed because we would have been inside his head already. So, um, like I said, if this was mine, I might go back and even with the rewrite, you know, interject some of that just because it, it gives us more of a sense of what he's doing here in purpose. Um, because he isn't going to be able to ask an intelligent question. He just can't. He doesn't know enough. And so that's why at this point I have her stop him and change the direction of the conversation in a natural way because it's a circle back point. We can come back to it later if we need to. We can reference her stopping him as a way that he actually becomes suspicious of it. Like there's a lot we can play with here, but my immediate purpose of it is to redirect the conversation because we don't want Reggie asking a lot of stupid questions right now and just filling up the conversation with nonsense. And so this is a, a shortcut to keep it moving. She just cuts him off and says, am I reading you right? Is this what you're looking for? He clarifies it and we move on. I see. She leaned back and draped an arm over the seat. I'm afraid you've wasted a trip, Mr. Carpenter. There's not much I can offer that will be of any use. So this there is the punchline to the above. Is She's basically telling him, implying, we could have just done this over the phone. If you're not here to collect these documents, you know, there's nothing that I can tell you that we couldn't have just, you know, crossed off and saved you the trip. So now we're back to Reggie and his thoughts. Disappointment must have crossed my face, though if I'm being honest, that had more to do with the way she'd reverted to formality than to any supposed lack of helpful information. So that's Reggie being enamored. It's it's reinforcing the fact that he's into her and, and distracted, and he's more concerned about the fact that now she's calling him Mr. instead of Reggie, um, but not in, it's, it's about him and, and, and wanting her to like him versus him being overly obsessive about her. It's just all in the framing. That's all it is. Just a slight change. She said, how much do you know about the way appraisals work? So she's responding here to the confusion and disappointment on his face the wrong confusion, but in a way that naturally segues into what this conversation needs to relay for the sake of plot. Reggie responds, about as much as I know about art. So that's our first circle back to his observation in the living room. And it says the same thing as the original, not much, but I can learn in a more sly and witty way, which feels more natural and it reveals character. The quip made her smile. She said, the terminology can be confusing. A lot of people conflate appraisal with authentication, but when it comes to art and memorabilia, they're not the same thing. And that's where we're gonna cut for today. All right, so that is it for this week's podcast. We will be back next Thursday. I don't know that it will be the conclusion, but I know that we will at least get through the changes that Taylor made, right? You think? We're getting very close to the end, I think. And come on back next week and see if we close this out.